gentlemen and otherwise, I would like to welcome you to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. I am your host, Kelly KFM Meyer, and I consider myself lucky that any of you are even here. In January 2020, I began writing a book outlining all the gory mistakes that I had made since my wife and I founded our brewery eight years earlier. The second edition of that book is at 57,000 words and available on Amazon, both in Kindle and paperback formats. Please check it out, pick it up, read it, and share it with a friend. The show is the same name as that book simply because my goal here is to help my guests to experience the same catharsis I did after laying my story out in public, and because I know that the lessons I wrote about were only the tip of an enormous iceberg. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe, like, write a review, share with a friend. Trust me, it all really helps. In this podcast, I will interview people in and around the beer business to uncover the mistakes, the pitfalls, and the hardships that all of us poor souls in the brewing industry have had the misfortune to experience. My guests will autopsy dead and dying breweries, break down the science of brewing, and dissect the art of marketing. I'll talk to distributors, retailers, beer writers, even a fan or two. Hell, I'll shove a mic in front of anyone I think can make you better in your business. This is open and honest conversation packed with emotion and sincerity, and hopefully, a little bit of fucking vulgarity. I want to thank you for joining my guests and I on this journey, and I truly hope together that we are able to teach you and your loved ones how not to start a damn brewery. Our guest this week is none other than Jody Reyes, the founder, proprietor, marketer, and all-around swell motherfucker from Witchcraft up in Austin, Texas. If you don't know Jody, I can assure you that your life is worse off for it. The beer industry is overflowing with misguided arrogance and dripping with rampant douchebaggery. Yet somehow, Jody has managed to stand right in the center of the Austin craft beer scene for close to eight years and still maintain a state of influence. And zen. I'm well aware that you didn't, but if you did ask me, I would tell you that he is definitely the Jodasattva of Texas craft beer. Witchcraft is maybe the most important craft beer account and maybe the most important craft beer city in Texas. But the road to that much notoriety didn't come any easier than a drunk redneck. Jody struggled against city ordinances, relocation construction, and a dynamically changing marketplace. The main reason that I asked him to share his story with us is because what he's seen as he grew his business is what you need to know to grow yours. If you want your business to thrive, you're going to need mavens like Jody's team up at Witchcraft to stand up for you and your beer. All right, so let's start by asking what he's seen from working with breweries around Austin. Remember when you had to buy film for your camera, take pictures you couldn't see or edit, and then pay someone to take two weeks to develop them into pictures? Well, there wasn't a better way then, but there is a better way now. Are you literally still measuring final gravity with a hydrometer like some furry caveman? Dude, you need to get AccuBrew. You'll find real-time feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. And the thing will alert you anywhere in the world when any of them are out of your spec. I'm tired of telling you to make better beer, so go install AccuBrew and make me shut up. Seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and even I will thank you. And meanwhile, guys and gals were super smart before they opened. They went around to kind of their top, haven't asked them, but probably 20 or 30 accounts that they knew they were going to eventually want to sell into. Mm. And they came in early, had beers, introduced themselves. Hey, this is who we are. We just moved from Portland. We're opening this new brewery. We're like a year out. But we just want to get to know the retailers in the community because you guys are going to be great partners for us, hopefully, in the future. Like, that's brilliant. Absolutely fucking brilliant. If you're a brewery that you have the staff and the time to be able to do that and kind of pre-build those relationships, then by the time the brewery opens, there's some hype around them. The first time Connor comes in to sell some kegs, it's like, it's not like, okay, this new brewery, I got to taste it, make sure the quality's there. I don't know who these guys are, what their brewing pedigree is. You know, you don't have to go through that stuff. It's like, oh man, I'm excited to see Connor. You got kegs for me to sell? Awesome. Let's do it. It's a whole different whole different spin on it, right? That's the first time I see a brewery get that far upstream with their retailers to do it. But I thought that was really, 
really clever. So anyway, back to the example of a new brewery coming in. So you're going to taste the beers, and after having done this and tasted thousands of beers in a professional capacity, that's the moment when the quality does have to be there. If the beers are not good, or if there's, they're riddled with off flavors, or if they pour me a, what they call a pilsner on the label, but I can't see through it, you know, if it's hazy, but it's, if they call it hazy, but it's not actually hazy, or vice versa, if they call it a West Coast IPA, but it's super hazy, it's like, I, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more old school than I should be in this regard, but if you're going to call something a pilsner, it should look like a fucking pilsner, right? If you want to make a strawberry lager, don't call it a pilsner, right? <laughs> it's like, call it anything you want, just don't call it what the style guidelines say it should be, right? So part of that is, again, me being a little bit old school, and now that everybody's making fruited, slushy everything... Nobody cares about style guidelines except for old school beer guys, but I still do. So anyway, part of it is that is, you know, here in the background of the brewery, the story, who's brewing, you know, what's the pedigree of the brewers? Is it just someone that have kind of stepped up from a homebrew system, which a lot of people have had a lot of success doing that, not to disparage that. But if they're first time brewing on a super large scale, the first few batches might not be 100% all the way there. Not to, to call anybody out here, but I'm good friends with Chris and Whitney at the Brutorium. Love the Brutorium. They're in my neighborhood. My wife and I are there all the time. Love their beers. Those first few batches for those first few months when they opened up, you know, Chris won like dozens of homebrew awards when he was homebrewing before they opened up their own brewery. And so he was super accomplished and his beers were great, but it took him a, a number of batches to kind of figure out the scale of professional brewery size batches and kind of hone in his hopping and dry hopping schedules, lagering times, all those things. I don't know enough about all of his processes and beers to know exactly what he was tweaking, but it took him a little bit. And I think he would admit that if you asked him. But I also knew that based on his pedigree and his background as a successful home brewer, a super successful home brewer, that he was going to get there eventually. So anyway, here in the background, the story, who's brewing, tasting the beers, looking at the packaging, if they are going to be selling package, what styles, what's the price points of the package. Some people greatly undervalue, vast majority of people don't undervalue, but overvalue their package depending on the style. So any hazy that anybody makes is now all of a sudden $80 yeah. case, you know, price to, to retailer, which would be like an $80 case is like a $21 four pack, 16 ounce can on the shelf, right? So if it's going to be it's like electric jellyfish, mm -hmm. if it's going to be that price point, it better be fucking good. Just because you decided to make a hazy, Mr. or Mrs. Brewery owner, it better be good if you want to try and charge that price point, right? So part of the retailer's job is to provide that brewery some feedback. Like if you're coming in here and you don't... If you're brand new to the market, if you're coming out from Houston or from Dallas, and you're going to try and sell me an $85 case, it better be fucking outstanding. Because if it's not, I might buy a case or two, but it's going to sit here, and then what do you think that's going to make me think of your brewery? I'm not going to want to buy anything else in the future. You can't. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Actually, one of the things I go through in the book is how that works, where you, as a brewery, can start stocking shelves, mm -hmm. and you get a bunch mm -hmm. of different things out there, and then if it doesn't move, yeah. there's no space for you. So yeah. if you come back in, you're like, hey, I want to sell you this totally. new one. Totally. You're like, well, yeah, but those two shelf yeah, spaces that you have, sure. like you got to get rid of those. Totally. And that, and that's a bigger deal in larger retailers too, I would imagine. Right. So mm -hmm. yeah, more big boxes. When you're talking about super small business boutique like us, I don't think that's as much of a factor, but it definitely is still a factor. If I've got shit that's still sitting there from six months ago, why am I going to bring in a new case of whatever? I only have so much shelf space in total to dedicate to a particular brewery or style or whatever. So yeah, it's sell through is the name of the game. Yeah, it's challenging part of the game. Yeah, yeah. Mistake two yeah. was start small and build. And okay. So that was one of the things that we did as a brewery that mm -hmm. we started a very small facility and then had the intention to get bigger mm -hmm. like everybody else. But 
I kind of saw the fault in that early on where if I had expanded, I couldn't get the sales to justify it. Mm. Anyways, long story short, we never expanded. We did build a new brew house and mm-hmm. we tore everything down and rebuilt it. You obviously expanded to a second location. Yeah. So like, walk me through the thought process there for you. Like, what was that like? I'm I'm in this small mm-hmm. non-draft facility, but I've got big plans. Yeah. So A, why did you think it would work? And B, how did you decide to do it? Yeah. So that was always, always what we wanted to get to because I knew that if nothing else from a um, customer experience standpoint, to be able to offer on and off premise uh, in the same facility would be the best way to go, right? Because then when a customer comes in, let's say they're shopping for packaged beer and they're like, hey, I really like kettle sours. It's like, cool, you know, here's our six packs and four packs. Here's our singles area, mix and match, yada, yada. But if you have a few minutes, I've actually got a new one on the draft wall that maybe you've never had before, just came out, it's not in package, whatever. So were you planning on staying for a drink? Well, no, I wasn't, but now that you mention it, got half an hour to kill okay cool boom all of a sudden now we're cross-selling and selling some draft beers that maybe they weren't going to have otherwise vice versa is also true they come in they try a couple of things on draft oh hey you know uh you're having this blue owl tropical brute did you know they just released last week a new seasonal that's the blah blah and so you recommend mm-hmm. that and all of a sudden they came in to have a couple couple drinks with their friends and now they're leaving with a mixed six pack of packaged beers if nothing else from a sales um customer experience standpoint be the cross-selling opportunities to be able to enhance their experience while they're here, selling both draft and package. I mean, that's, that's the gold standard of how you want to interact with your customer. And then from a paying the bill standpoint, as we've already talked about, the margin you get on draft beer is way better than on package beer. So from a kind of business planning standpoint, yeah, we always we knew we wanted to get to draft. And we started looking for a second location really only after about a year of operating the original Witchcraft, if that. When I first set up the company, I had a board of directors, two guys that I used to know from my, my corporate days. And one of them was my old boss and mentor, and the other one was his old boss and mentor. And so I had them join my board just in an advisory capacity initially. And after we kind of saw how the first Witchcraft was going, they offered to bring some money into the company. And that's what provided us the capital to open up this place. So without their investment, we would have never run of like if it was just me, I wouldn't have been able to get to this location. I just wouldn't have had the capital. And so when they brought that money in, that's what allowed us to find the real estate, do the build out and actually open this place. And now looking back in hindsight, without that investment, there wouldn't be any witchcraft anymore because <laughs> the original location was not, um, when you looked at what the sales were going to be over time and then what the rent was increasing to over time, mm. it just would have been at some point, it would have been untenable to be profitable in that location. Being able to come here and do both draft and package and coffee and food allowed us to still be in business. So was that the original intention was to have both facilities open or was it always just to get the heck out of there because you saw um, the end coming? I would say, you know, we operated both simultaneously for about two and a half, about two years. And we wanted to keep the South Mar open for as long as we could. We explored a whole bunch of different options with the landlord, but for a whole variety of reasons I won't bore you with, we, we just couldn't get it done. We tried when the... There was originally like a bikini store, a swimwear store next to us when they went out of business and left. We tried to take that over and build a little bar there. But yeah. um, then, it, you know, Austin was just a mess. And so the permitting and the zoning wasn't right from the city. If you take over more square footage to make a bar, you have to have a different quantity of parking spaces. And the parking lot <laughs> attached didn't have enough parking spaces. There was just this, all of this uh, red tape, all these roadblocks. And so we were never going to be able to do on-premise consumption in that location. So right. therefore, it was like, okay... 
once we knew we weren't going to be able to expand in those four walls and offer on-premise consumption, we knew that that location itself would have to go away at some point. So how long did the construction take on this facility? Um, let's see. I signed a lease, I think, February 2016, and we opened up Veterans Day. So like middle of November. That's about how long it usually Yeah, takes. about nine months. Yeah. And that was design, build out. Didn't include the negotiation of the lease, too. I think we started negotiating the lease November, December of 2015. So it took about 12 months from like finding this space yeah. real estate wise to be in like all right we think we want that space let's start negotiations sign the lease do the build out so it's about a year it's perfect you kind of have a whole wall of yeah. package like in the old place but you also have all the seats to be able to mm-hmm. you know, hang out inside yeah. sit outside there's always something you do differently what would you change what would you have uh, if you could go back and do it again yeah i would uh have planned in better food options from the start oh yeah um because no surprise when people are drinking two or maybe three beers, having something to eat with it is pretty crucial. <laughs> maybe they'll stay for a fourth or maybe they'll just stay for that second or third where they wouldn't otherwise if they didn't have some food. So we didn't do great due diligence initially with the health department to find out exactly what we could and couldn't do. We just kind of took their blanket statements of what bars, quote unquote, are and are not allowed to do as gospel, as opposed to going around to other places around town and maybe talking to some people who are in the industry to be like, hey, you don't have a kitchen. But you, I see people eating food. How does that work? And they're like, well, we don't have a kitchen because we don't have a grease trap. We don't have a vent hood. We don't have a high-temp dishwasher. We don't have a cooktop. But we have a panini press. We have a microwave. We have a convection oven, like a countertop convection oven. In between those things, you can make a shitload of different food options. And, like, a lot of people wouldn't even know that you don't have a kitchen based on some of the things coming out from the back. So it's like, I wish I would have done more diligence initially to find out exactly what we can do. Then we would have, instead of building a little office in the back, we would have built, like, a little tiny kitchen. Yeah, kind of a fake kitchen. Faux kitchen. Yeah, exactly. Well, especially with COVID, I'm sure you learned the food was an important piece of that little equation too. For sure. That's definitely one of the issues that we have. And so not having food has always been Mm -hmm. a problem for us, but there's just no way really for us to do it in that facility. I don't have enough room for bottles, so I got nowhere to put anything. Um, Do you guys have success with food trucks? No. Really? Uh, At all. In fact, Is that a New Braunfels uh, thing or is that just a... Well, New Braunfels made it tough because they actually, which I think Austin may have the same regulations, but they have... Our food trucks have to have the same thing a kitchen would. So oh. they've got um, fire suppression. Oh, wow. They have to have vent hood. Yeah. They have, to have all these very expensive kitchen-oriented things. And so there were a lot of trucks that would reach out to us back in the day, and they couldn't come to New Braunfels wow. because they didn't meet code. Wow. And then so frustrating. A few of the stuff. ones that did just... They don't know what they're doing. So I use a, one example in my book of one that really screwed me over and oh, really man. pissed me off. And I did call them out by name, but you'll have to read to find out who it was. Fair enough, a little teaser. Yeah. So another one of the mistakes that I made repeatedly was to not hire qualified help. Mm. And so I, I use the example of hire a guy to make beer instead of investing in a fucking brewery. <laughs> uh, I know you've had managers throughout the years. Yeah. I know you've obviously been the manager at different times. But in your business specifically, what did you do to, to find that leader? Yeah. Uh, I'd say the best example we have is, is right now with where we're currently at. So Justin Jacobson, he's our current GM here. He's an industry vet here in Austin and worked at tons of different restaurants, all front of house stuff, some back house too. But yeah, finding a professional general manager who you can hand stuff to, have 100% confidence about how they're going to operate. I mean, it really makes all the difference. It allows me to not be here every single day anymore and have confidence in his ability to run the place, making sure our customers are getting taken care of, making sure the stuff that needs to get done is getting done. It's tough to overstate how important that is. But I also get it because it's tough and hiring the right people takes money. And money isn't what a lot of startups have. Um, <laughs> Sometimes so, in the very beginning, but yeah, not after 90 yeah, days. Yeah, totally. So I don't know. I don't think there's a silver bullet there. I think every business is going to be different. Every, you know, each set of founders or owners are going to have their own unique skill sets and stuff that they're just inherently good at or just how they want to spend their time. 
So the things that you are either A, not good at, or B, don't want to spend your time doing, you need to find people that are good at doing those things. It also helps that my business partners are good at things that I'm not good at and vice versa. And so that helps kind of balance out everything there too. There's really only a few positions that are absolutely crucial positions in our company because we're not that big of a company. Mm-hmm. For a brewery, it's the same thing. If you're it's not have a very well accomplished head brewer, you're going to make things really hard on yourself <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Right? And on the palates of your customers. <laughs> yeah. It's tough to skimp on those things. And it's a tough world these days. You know, we're reading all these news articles these days about how tough labor is in the US and it's getting more and more expensive labor-wise to run a small business. And there's really nothing you can do about it. Charge your customers more. Okay, sure. Yeah, within reason. Absolutely. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think there's some labor dynamics happening right now in the middle of 2021 that are, we're in the middle of a larger seismic shift in the American labor economy, I think. It feels like we are coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, just things feel more on more uneven ground with regard to how employers and employees are interacting than they have, at least in my recent memory. I don't know if I answered your question there, but... No, you did. So one question I would ask that brought that brought up. Yeah, you're saying one of the best managers, if not the best manager, you had is the one that you currently have. Yeah. So does that mean that you got better at finding managers, or you got really lucky that this dude fell out of the sky and landed on your face? <laughs> uh, with this, I would say it's probably more the latter than the former. You know, like any small business, and particularly service-oriented business, we've had some hits and we've had some misses. Uh, yeah, we've had some hits and we've had some misses. I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say beyond that. Hiring is not easy, but it's absolutely crucial to get right. And you have to know that you're going to make mistakes. And even with your best intentions and your best thought process and thinking, you still could end up with not a good fit. And that bad fit could both go both directions. Either you're not a good fit for the employee or the employee's not a good fit for you and your culture and your business. Uh, being okay with that and just being okay with moving on because everyone's got their own shit going on. Everyone's going in different directions. Even employee that's been fantastic and you know all these things have been great their life circumstances could change and all of a sudden now it's a battle and it's a clash and you don't see eye to eye so it's tough i mean there's no i mean you know with managing people it's one of the toughest parts of any business particularly small business because small business owners have to do a thousand different things and then being a good leader you know is takes its own skill set and takes a fair amount of time. I don't know if I have any more wisdom on that one. That's a, it's a tough nut to crack. It is, yeah. it is, man. Yeah. I've definitely struggled that one through the years myself. Even yeah. in my other company, it was yeah. recruiting was one of those daily things that mm-hmm. if you have 30 employees, you've got to be on it all the time. Yeah. If you've got five, it's almost worse because it's harder <laughs> to replace that one with another good yeah, one. Yeah, it is. That's true. So let's switch over to mistake four, okay. which was just brew whatever is popular instead of whatever is profitable. <laughs> oh God. Um, this is a whole novel on its own, right? And one of my favorite questions to ask on this one is, yeah. give us some examples of what people were literally lining up the outside door for yeah. back in 2014, and then contrast that with what people are, and they're not lining out the door, but you know what I mean. Now, well, yeah, you can't get people to line out the door for anything. Mm-hmm. Well, Yes, you can. I mean, that's not true. There are a handful of breweries, and it's really only a handful these days. It's like Jester King. Uh, is anybody lining up for beer releases at other breweries these days? I don't see it. I don't see it. Yeah. I don't even know if Jester King has the lines like they used to anymore. I just no, I think they did as... more beer than ever last year, but a lot of that was the, the yeah. easy IPA, some yeah, of the lower exactly. margin stuff. But... Well, that should tell you a little chunk of wisdom right there, too. I mean, Jester King has always been about their time and place and mixed culture philosophy. And then, lo and behold, you know, 12 months ago, all of a sudden, we started seeing lagers and pilsners and stouts and hazy ipas from them which is like that's cool i got nothing against them so, you know if that's what they they want to start making great but for so long they were like staunchly anti 
anything well, and it worked for that culture sour it did so was the market i think yeah. so at the end of the yeah, day true. just it, maybe it's a barometer for the overall change I, in the market i think but. that it is yeah so um to go back to your your question you know we had a term chase beers i'm sure you've heard that term so back in the day you know 2013 14 15 people would when a new beer was released kbs or whatever dogfish 120 minute beers that literally you can find on shelves everywhere nowadays when With they would drop yeah exactly when they would drop people would take the afternoon off of work and drive around to as many bottle shops or grocery stores or mini marts and buy up as many bottles as they could. So they chase them around town. Basically the term came from chasing the beer truck around and each time the beer truck made a stop at a different retailer, they'd go in and buy some bottles. <laughs> so back then it was about once a week, once every two weeks, there would be a chase beer that would come out. So, I mean, from a retailer standpoint, it was gold because every single week or every other week you'd have instant revenue, you know, Mm-hmm. that case would get dropped off and it'd be gone by the next day. I mean, that's nothing but cash flow. I'll take that business all day long, right? You haven't even paid for it yet. It's yeah. already in your bank account, essentially. So there were a lot of beers back then, like I said. I mean, even like Hops and Grain, who's uh, is slash was a local brewery, even their greenhouse IPA series was a chase beer. Remember mm-hmm. I'd go, I was saying earlier, I'd go log, load up my GTI with however many cases of Hop and Grain greenhouse I could get, which was just a, rotating IPA series. I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing. And then people would come in and buy for a rotating IPA series. Now, literally everybody has a rotating IPA series. And yeah. they don't sell out usually. No, yeah. they, no, no, they definitely don't. So yeah, there's so few beers like that. You'll get little pockets of that every now and again, pretty much when a new brewery comes to town, like we're just getting ready to launch Toppling Goliath from the Midwest is just coming here to the Texas market this week, actually. So when Toppling Goliath hits, people get all excited about Pseudo Sue and King Sue, beers we haven't been able to get in Texas ever. And so people will buy the crap out of it for about two weeks, and then it'll be just like get rid of the beer on the shelf, mm-hmm. guaranteed. Um, I remember when we would get one or two cases of Lone Pines Yellow Rose in the 750 milliliter bottle format. You remember how old yeah. <laughs> those are? And we'd get one or two cases of those. People would come in and buy whatever they would. We would let them. Back then, we would limit it. You know, limit of one bottle per person. And that was for a 750 milliliter bottle of a Smash IPA. I mean, think about that. Just that statement. People would drop everything they're doing, drive to the bottle shop to buy 750 milliliters of a Smash Mosaic IPA. Now, it's a great beer, but that's not happening in 2021. <laughs> no, not even their beer. Not like even their, yeah, exactly. So anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah, so is yeah. there anything now that you see that still falls in that category? Maybe it doesn't sell out in a day, but yeah. it's you know, the, the one that it, you, if you could get 10 cases, you would, but you can only get two or you know that kind of thing. Honestly, I, I can count on one hand how many in a year are like that now. Really? In a year, yeah. So it, it comes down to new releases like Toppling Goliath, like I just mentioned. The other most recent one was Dry Fontainen from Belgium. Do you know oh, those yeah. guys? Fantastic. I mean, world-class brewery. Probably so, a top five brewery in the world. One of my favorite breweries. Absolutely. Sure. Incredible. Uh, you know, Lambic, Goose. And it's just incredible shit. Like my, when my wife and I were in Europe, we purposely went to go to Trifontainen. And so we're looking at them up there on the shelf. Those ones have been up there for about four months now. So when we got our first shipment, we sold, I think, probably eight or ten cases of different things in 24, 48 hours. Because people were yeah. super excited because we could never have gotten them here in Texas before illegally. And now they're going to sit up there with the rest of the goose. But the good news with goose, it's only getting better up on that top shelf. I'm <laughs> looking forward to drinking that shit in about four or five years. Oh, so good. Next year, you call it a vintage. You add a buck to <laughs> yeah, the bottle there price. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, to answer your question, I can count on one hand how many things are actual, like people get excited about Chase Beers. Well, so since you're obviously more connected to the consumer than the average brewery is, mm-hmm. what the fuck do you think happened? <sighs> you know, great question. I've, I've mulled that over and had many uh, discussions over a pint 
with breweries about that. It's, it's a confluence of factors. It's not one factor. It's number one, this shit got really expensive. And so everybody with disposable or semi-disposable income was like, how much money did I spend on beer last month? <laughs> so that was part of it. People were spending a lot of money. My wife and I would go down to Jester King in 2014-15, and we'd get you know a couple draft beers. Some, you know, staff would take care of us, so we'd tip big. But we'd end up with leaving with 125 bucks worth of package beers every single time. We'd do that like every other week. Like what yeah. the fuck? No, I mean, nobody needs that much. Uh, and Jester you built a cellar, and now you have a bunch exactly. Of stuff. And then I spent about four years trying to drink it down. So I think that's part of it. I think that people built up home cellars, quote unquote, and then they realize I'm not drinking this beer. I'm just looking at this beer. It's not getting any better. It's after some point, I just got to start drinking all this shit. So part of it is the consumer shifting. Part of it is um, the supply became so much more wide. So you can- and when we get back, Jody's going to give us his opinion on the macro side of how all those bottles make any sense to the industry at large. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. The summary question of that, in my opinion, is essentially, do you think it's sustainable? Meaning, no consumers are excited about anybody's specific product. Are they excited about the industry overall? Oh, God, that's a good question. I hope you're going to ask that question of other people who are smarter than me and have a much larger view than I do in this industry, because that's a really interesting question. And I think, here's what I know about the macro craft beer industry. I use that term, craft beer industry, very specifically. Back in 2014, craft beer was still like a super duper rally, and that was something was a banner that we all kind of gathered behind and carried forward. Now, craft beer is a much more segmented market, and I think that the big beer companies, Bud and Miller Coors, all those guys, they won that battle by diluting what craft beer meant by acquiring craft beer brands. Right. So by them acquiring these craft beer brands, they now have created enough questions in consumers' minds about what craft beer is, because if Elysian is craft beer and Carbach is craft beer. To a consumer, do they really care where that dollar flows, whether it's Budweiser or whether it's a small business owner in our community? Yeah, some people absolutely do care. Four of them. <laughs> but I would say a pretty small minority do. Or if you're like me and you're at a Round Rock Express game and they have a Carbach and they have a Budweiser and you only have those two options, it's like, okay, I'm going to drink the Carbach Love Street. I, I'm not going to drink Budweiser because I think it's shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that has changed, clearly. Uh, what was the original question? I kind of lost my track there. Just do you think that consumers are excited about the industry? Do oh. you have a passion for um, craft beer anymore? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Some people do. I think where I think the industry has already gone somewhat and will continue to go is all about back to the micro level, meaning consumers at a micro level in their neighborhood getting to know people who make beer in their neighborhood who live in their neighborhood, right? So I'll use Oddwood yeah. Ales as another example. They're just down the street, about a mile away from us, family owned, family run, great beers. I don't, to my knowledge, they haven't distributed 
excuse me, a single drop of their beer outside of their own tap room and they've been open like three years or whatever. So they're serving their neighborhood. People within like live within a mile or two miles. That's, I mean, that's great. They're supporting, they're creating jobs in their community. The people that come in and drink the beers live in that community. So that's what you see in very well-developed beer cities, Denver, San Diego. You see these tiny little micro neighborhoods supporting their breweries. So to me, that's kind of the purest expression of what a brewery kind of should be. We're never going to see another brewery that starts like an Austin Beer Works size grow to be as big as Founders or Modern Times. It's just the eras of gigantic, you know, small Sierra Nevada growing from small in Chico, California to all of a sudden Brooklyn Brewing. You're just not going to see anybody grow that big anymore. It's just not going to happen without an acquisition by Bud or Molson. Or it's not Molson Miller. But what you're going to see is, is everything go back to the micro level, which I think is cool because I think that's, you know, there's nothing more hyper-local than somebody who lives in your neighborhood, who owns a group up in your neighborhood, making beer for the people who live in the neighborhood. That's awesome. Love that. So that's the model. Hopefully that will work. Well, yeah, I think that's <laughs> the model that has the best chance of working. <laughs> Put yeah. it that way. Because that feels sustainable. Because you don't need, you know, think about what it takes to run a huge packaging facility. Think about the Oscar Blues facility here in town, right? They do a ton of packaging at that facility, I'm sure. How many, how many people do they have on staff up there? 50? Just on the packaging side? Or like the, you know, production side, I mean? 75? Like, that's a lot of people. I don't know. I mean, when's the last time you saw Oscar Blues beer on draft anywhere? And it's a low-margin game when yeah, you're going to straight exactly. package like that. So that's, that's my point is, like, you know, nothing against the breweries that were in the industry at the times that could grow their businesses to be able to get that big. Fantastic for them. They made a series of great decisions, great investments. Awesome. Happy for them. But I just don't see consumers all of a sudden shifting their dollars to buy more Oscar Blues or Sierra Nevada. Sure. You know? I think things are getting more hyper-local. Again, I have a myopic view because I live in one community in Austin. Who does really appreciate local. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I, you know, all other things being equal, I'm going to spend my dollars locally for sure. Sure. So, I don't know. But that's a really great question. I think you should ask all the people you talk with that. <laughs> I'll try to find someone smarter than us. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Right? Yeah. One thing I think you can do is help maybe predict the future for fun, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. But what do you think the next five years holds? What I've seen recently is the it was sort of the... the the pastry stout yeah. was the beginning. And, yeah. and now it's this fucking abomination oh. called the pastry sour. I don't even exactly know what that is. The yeah. smoothie sour. What's oh. next? Cold IPA is next. And is then the, after uh, that. Is the mic picking up my sigh? My very <laughs> sad sigh? Because that's what it is. I, I'm i old school. I like beer to look like beer. I like a good hazy IPA from time to time. But all yeah, all the additions of lactose just is like... I don't need a bunch more sugar in my life. You know what I mean? I don't need a bunch of lactose in my beers. So, I don't know. I mean, no one saw the seltzer wave coming. And seltzer is like a $4 billion industry this year, 2021. And like every brewery is making one now, it seems like. So, it's like, I don't... I'd be rich as shit if I knew the answer to that question. I'll put it that way, Kelly. Yeah, I I mean, I, I don't know. I think because beer is still... Starts with barley, malted barley, and gets added. A whole bunch of other stuff gets added in there. People will continue to experiment to make beer taste like a whole bunch of things that aren't beer. And there's a, a pretty decent, decent sized section of the market that likes that experimentation and appreciates that. Awesome. We love selling those people those things. So I'm not disparaging that. For me as a drinker, I have zero interest in putting that stuff and drinking that stuff. When there's so many well-made beer styles that I prefer to enjoy so i am of two minds there personally all that stuff is not for me all pastry uh sours and stouts and um super lactosey things but as a business owner yeah we love selling that stuff we'll support yeah. it 
we even have a seltzer on draft, which I wouldn't have made that choice, but Justin made that choice, and people are buying it. So you know what? Give the people what they want is my motto. <laughs> uh, but five years from now, I don't know, man. Uh, what do they ask for not drink? Give me the most what ridiculous I... beer prediction you can think of. Okay. Well, I just brought up astronauts, so we'll have space beer. It's basically all the elements of like a pastry sour freeze-dried, and so it's like a you packet eat it. that you eat. It's like those things when you go camping and you... You know what I'm talking about? Where you just like you, put you it just, on your... You just made that happen. Put it on your tongue and it melts and it tastes like cookies and cream ice cream or whatever. It's like space ice cream. That's what that stuff is. That's like actually not been far-fetched. There we go. You heard <clears throat> it here first. I feel like we're moving towards like things that don't taste like beer to the extent that at yeah. some point we're yeah. going to get a 19% gluten removed, yeah. essentially clear, no flavorless alcohol product that they just put in something else. So yeah. basically beer becomes vodka at that point. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Sure. We'll see. So mistake five mm-hmm. was use a mobile canner. Yeah. And so for a lot of these guys, I go through the math and why it doesn't make sense and how they're actually sure. losing money based on the... When uh, they use a mobile canner? Yeah, yeah. So not owning the canning line, yeah. not owning labor. There's a lot of ways this profit gets eaten up. Mm-hmm. But some of those figures are based on kind of sales prices too. So curious from your perspective, is 10 bucks too much for a Hefeweizen for a six pack? So what is too much? Where's the top end of the Hefeweizen can market? Specifically, six-pack, 12-ounce cans of Hefeweizen? Correct. What will a retailer pay? Well, like, what, what, what would you sell? What I was not a retailer, sorry. Yeah, uh, customer. Consumer. consumer. Um, what can you move it for? At a store like this, it's probably different than an HEB. So sure. I'll say that. I would say here at especially a boutique store, if it's something that, for whatever reason, the staff really thinks is fantastic, I would say probably 16 bucks. 16 bucks for six-pack? Mm-hmm. Really? If it's like, if there's something about it that... Is just blows so many mind, you know. Yeah, yeah. Does it have to have strawberries in it? We could. <laughs> that's, that's that's kind of my point. So that's like I'm just telling. If it has strawberries in it, that's probably like eighteen or twenty. I'm talking straight half of ice. Yeah, me too. All right. Yeah, fifteen, sixteen bucks. Okay. Around. If it's fantastic and it's like there's something crazy cool about it or the story or it's made by elves or something, I don't know. Do ah, you think German versus American makes a difference to a consumer? There's a small little subset of people who do like traditional German imports, but using that example, no, not really. I think, no, I think this may get slightly less PC, but I'll kind of say it anyway. If it had a story along the lines of like a, a very politically correct type of story um, and, and nothing else, it just is any other, like any other Hefeweizen, like flavor wise. Mm-hmm. But if it was made like it was, um, if people were really trying to be smart with how they're spending their dollars to support like a black owned business or a minority you know, BIPOC-owned business or um, LGBT brewery that's really trying to maybe give a portion of their proceeds back to the community or donate or something like that. So that's, that's my point is if there's a story within a $16 six-pack of Hefeweizen, then it could be that. That could fetch that price tag, no problem. Answer your question? Yeah. So, yeah. so if, it's, if a six-pack of Hefeweizen can go for 16 18 bucks, uh-huh. what about an IPA? Just a regular, plain old 6%. You what, it, what, what it can what do you think would move? Not not like you could sell one case one time and then it sits, but like legitimately what guy's trying to figure out is pricing. Mm. He's working his numbers. Okay. To go so back a brewery on. owner trying to price yeah. out. Again, this is more boutique right? So knock off a couple bucks when you're talking about a big box retailer. I'd say same thing, 16, 18 bucks. All right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. basically same price, top end, similar. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. There's a lot of factors there, but I just thought of something on the previous question. That was it. Crap beer's dead. Yeah, no. What the heck was it? I'll come back tomorrow. Well, I don't know. Well, if it does, let me know. <laughs> yeah. So we talked earlier about, you, you mentioned 750s 
500s kind of format style. We could say dying or we can say dead, however you want to word it. It's dead. For sure. Yeah, we still sell a couple here and there, but it's dead. All right. So in the old days, one of the things a lot of stores would do is you you would see almost a need for diversity. Mm -hmm. So even though you knew that some of those Belgian standards weren't going to move, you wanted to have it on the shelf, so you showed you had a Duchess when somebody came in. Yeah. But you knew you were going to sell the the six pack of the the Austin made pills no more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Do you still do that? Is that still a thing, or is that just sort of less and less? I still would when I was making all the the buying decisions. So yes, I would still do that. Like as an example, there are some beers that when I'm doing the buying, I'm always going to have Saison Dupont on the shelf, mm-hmm. even though it's a 750 milliliter cork and cage single format bottle. But there's nothing else in the world like Saison Dupont. It's incredible, right? They, they, there's a whole world of yeast strains that come from that yeast strain, right? That's a true fucking classic. So I'm always going to have that on the shelf because it's a fantastic beer. There's nothing else like it. So if a customer comes in and they're like, hey, I went to Jester King or Lazarus or wherever, and I had a great Saison. I never had Saison before. What is Saison? It's like, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) We're going to blow your mind, you know, and you're also going to accidentally spend 80 bucks. So just know that going into it. (laughs) So yeah, there are some some classics. You just got to have Duchess is a good one. What are some of the other things? Yeah, most of them are like a Chimay. You know, you got to have some Trappist beer. Trappist Duval. Yeah. Exactly. I sell, I sell a lot of Duval because people, yeah, have Belgian East. But Duval's just like, looks incredible. Like, the look of that beer is so perfect. It's 8%. It's just it's such a classic. So, yeah, there's absolutely some things that I will always keep in stock because they're just so singular. I listened to a podcast, actually, that the brewer's had done and was describing how they make that beer and the, how the recipe works and the process and Doodle? exactly how they go through Doodle. Interesting. Um, a little bit of history yeah. was in the story, but more importantly, what the more I listened to him, the sadder I got for the Why craft beer movement today, yeah. because that is a beer that most breweries would overlook. Yeah. It's quick. It's dirty. You, yeah. you throw in some sugar, some grains and, and a strong yeast. You give it 15 days and you rack that shit. Oh, really? and the oh I thought you were going to say the other, that it was just like, Super intense and multi-step decoction mash. It is for them. Oh, I see. What I mean is when you listen to how they make it traditionally in Europe the right way, and then you walk down the street and ask your brewery how they would make it, it just makes you want to cry. Gotcha. Like, there's so much history. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like, these guys are standards because they take it as seriously as an artist should. Totally. In my opinion. That's one of the things I love most about Live Oak. Like... For so many years, what Chip and the crew did at Live Oak was just stupid. They're all East Fifth facility. Did you ever go to that place? No, I've seen pictures. It was pictures. like a warehouse, man. It was just tiny, and I don't think it had AC, and it was not gross because it was a brewery, so it was clean, but like dingy, I guess is a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. But the multi-step decoction mash and how they logger things, the horizontal tanks, all this crazy shit they do where it's like nobody needs to do that stuff. But it's like Chip and his merry band of... <laughs> logger geeks <laughs> yeah. are just like so all about it and you just have to appreciate it the abgb guys the same way that it's like they're just so passionate about the most uh what to any anyone else is inconsequential details but to those guys the details are what matters that's what makes the beers so clean and yeah great looking and delicious you know it was conversations with the ABGB guy. The, the, the terminology of a six-week logger. Huh, yeah. Loggers take six weeks. We all know they take six weeks, yeah. six to eight. Yeah. But um, so many brewers are putting them out in 14. Yeah. That you, but when they start calling it a six to eight-week logger, it really opens up your mind. Like, totally. You know you what? You're fucking right. Uh-huh. should be. It needs it's time to declare. Yep. Clarify. Yeah. 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 So I like that name. That's pretty good. <clears throat> so uh, mistake six. Yeah. If you fuck up, don't dump it. Um, <laughs> have you ever had a brewery send in a fucked up batch of beer? So purposely, not nah, well. 
I, either I don't I don't okay. know that we would know that they did it on purpose. I yeah. hope we I wouldn't. Hope not, but yeah. But, uh, You're talking about just like exploding packages and stuff like that? So that's going to be wide open to run the gamut. Okay. That could be uh, you pour a beer on draft that's supposed to be clear and it's hazy as yeah. shit. It's got chunks of uh, floaties of God knows what in it. It could be exploding packages. It could be mislabeled. I don't whatever. But yeah. have you had some experience with yeah. getting product in that was not good? For sure. It happens. It happens for sure. Um, a lot of it's related to packaging, right? So packages will explode or... You know, it's not properly pasteurized if they pasteurize. And so a little bit of yeast left in the can. So, boom, you got an exploding top. Back when more things bottled, same sort of thing. Anything bottle conditioned. If it wasn't pork and cage and it was just a crown, you would have a chance of something potentially exploding. Draft beer. Yeah, you'll find stuff that's quality off quality, either off flavors or... Yeah, so it, it absolutely happens. I think the nice thing about how we've positioned ourselves in the market and how we hire and how we train, etc., is... When I go to a brewery with, hey, I think this beer is not like you intended it to be, mm-hmm. can you come check it out? And they know that I'm not just a guy who's trying to make a quick buck in this industry, that I poured my money and my heart and soul into this industry, trying to build a place that respects the beers that they make. So I think as soon as you come to the table as a small business owner, like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to respect the product that you make, so and I think it might not be right, can you come in and check it out and you tell me, when you approach it that way, 99 times out of 100, the brewery's going to be like, yeah, absolutely, I'll be there tomorrow or later today because, you know, they, they the exact same thing is true for them. They poured their money and their heart and soul into making this product. If it's not consumer, it's going to, even if, if it's on the retailer that doesn't clean their draft lines or, you know, beer clean glassware and don't do these things to make sure that the beer is as the brewer intended it, it's not the retailer in the consumer's eyes that's going to be responsible. It's the brewery, right? So sure. like we have a responsibility to our brewery partners to make sure that we're serving beer the proper way. We're keeping our draft lines clean, all that stuff, because the consumer doesn't care. They're going to blame it on the brewery being shitty. You know what I'm saying? Every time. Exactly. <laughs> and that's not fair, right? Because we own a step in that process. We own multiple steps in that process as a retailer. So, so for me, I've always taken a very collaborative approach with breweries. It's like, it's in both of our best interests if we have something that I don't think is where it needs to be quality-wise for whatever reason. You come in, test it, taste it, whatever, and we'll settle on a solution. If you disagree with me for some reason, okay, but I know a fair amount of beer haven't done this for better part of a decade. So you got to tell me why you think I'm wrong. And I'm willing to listen. I'm not an asshole. But on the flip side, if you do think something's wrong with the beer, yeah, I expect you to swap out the package or swap out the keg or take care of it, whatever, send it back to the distributor, whatever the remediation steps are. There's really, I mean, I can only count on one hand how many times in the last seven years have I had to actually be more forceful with my opinion to a brewery or distributor. And it just really doesn't happen that often because most people, your goals are aligned. You want to serve the retailer and the brewery wants to serve the best possible beer to the consumer. Distributors, eh. <laughs> eh. just kidding. I mean, most of the distributors we work with, particularly the smaller ones, that are they, they do absolutely have a, they care about quality. Not all of them do, but the, the smaller ones really do, which is great. So same thing, you reach out to your distribution rep, hey, this beer doesn't seem quite right, can you pop in and take a look? That's the good news. The bad news is every now and again, packaging dates can be a problem, particularly it was during COVID because people had packaging just sitting around, so they try and just like sell it through to their distributor. We get a case in that was four months old, six months old. You know, if it's an IPA and it was canned four months ago, it's like, come on. We try and catch that stuff when it first walks in the front door before it even gets off the dolly. But every now and again, we miss it and we take a look. It's like, oh shit, this beer is past its drink by date or it's just been in this package for too long. Can you come swap it out? Again, 99 times out of 100, no problem. The brewery is more than happy to come swap it out. Also, that leads right into mistake seven. Yeah. Trust distributors to sell your beer. 
yeah, good luck with that one. Do you buy from all the distributors here in Austin? Um, I think that we probably buy at least a few things from all distributors. Just I think. based on products that you want in the store that yeah. you need? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the assortment is like, at this point, I consider it more art than science because I've been doing it for so long. But when I had to actually teach Justin, hey, here's how you you kind of decide on your assortment and here's how your assortment will change over time as seasonals come through. It's difficult. And I realized that I, I needed to kind of put some parameters around what is the assortment. Because when you only have a finite amount of shelf space, and this is the same for any retailer around America, um, there's only so many shelves. And for breweries, the quantity of breweries that have increased in the last 10 years is way more than the quantity of shelves that you can sell beer onto in the last 10 years. Would you agree right. with that statement? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So competition's gotten way harder. Same is true for us, right? We have to be much more, you know, back in the old days, in the early South Lamar days, if somebody would come in, a new brewery startup or a new distributor and be like, hey, I'm so-and-so, you know, I've got these two, this new brewery from Mexico or whatever. I've got these, this fucking lager and this pale ale. Do you want to try it? It's like, yeah, sure. Well, okay, why not? We'll try it. <laughs> we'll see how it does. Now it's like, no, it have to, we have to be way more discerning. And then you add in, we only have 30 tabs, only in quotes, right? Right. It seems like a lot, but it's really not when you talk about, you know, having a balanced board of a bunch of different styles of beers. When you only have 30 tabs, you have to be much more discerning. Here's what I'm willing to put on the craft wall. Here's what I'm not. How do you guys handle out of stocks? So, but, and I asked this as last summer, I started doing guest beer. Mm-hmm. And when I did, there are certain distributors that are really, really bad about that. Mm. So, like, there's a half of Boston, for example, that we want to keep on draft or on a package all the time, mm-hmm. and it's a pain in the ass because mm-hmm. that distributor just does not stock it regularly. Mm-hmm. Does that is that an issue for you? Like, do you guys deal with that much? It's it's actually both a yes and a no. It's a yes because yeah, when there are certain things that you know fit a niche, like having one or two great German made Hefeweizens is a good one. Or having a Dortmunder, because nobody makes a Dortmunder. So when you find a Dortmunder in package, it's like, yeah, I want to keep that in the assortment just in case. One customer out of 500 comes in and they're like, hey, I'm studying for my BJCP guidelines. Do you have a Dortmunder? It's like, yeah, I got you, buddy. doesn't happen that often on Dortmunders, but it's good for your stuff. <laughs> so that's that's the yes part is like when something's out of stock, yes, it's frustrating. But on the flip side, goes back to what we, the point we were just making a minute ago. There's so many beers and there's so many breweries out there. Unfortunately, if something is out of stock one or two or three weeks in a row, it's going to lose its spot on the shelf. Now, we don't planogram like HEB does, right? You know, you go into an HEB and every single facing they have and they're cold box and on their, their warm shelf is all planogrammed, right? So-and-so beer goes in this slot, so-and-so beer goes in that slot. And if it's out of stock, really fucked. Like, you're going to lose that slot, that slot, you're never going to get it back again. We're not like that because we, you know, our, our shelf styles will expand and contract based on seasonals and holidays and pumpkin beers and whatever else. Pumpkin beers? People what are those? still make those. I don't know. <laughs> so do you consider brewery tap rooms to be competition for you? And if so, how do you handle it? There was a time when I did... But it's like a you-can't-beat-them, join-them sort of scenario. They're not going anywhere, and it doesn't make sense to compete against them because it's not really competing. I prefer to take the opinion of, like, anybody who's going to a brewery tap room is getting exposed to beers, and they're getting exposed to beers that are made in their local community. Anytime any consumer is enjoying beers in their local community, that's great for the community of beer producers and sellers. And I don't really think you can have another opinion because you're not going to stop them, people from going to breweries. I go to breweries. I'm at breweries all the time. I'm not going to stop doing that just because I own a bar. That'd be silly. Uh, but I also go to bars, you know? And so, I mean, competition, I, I don't know if I'd use that that term specifically because it's not like an either or thing. I think that 
as consumers explore and go to more breweries, they get more interested in other things and other styles. And, you know, if you go to, um, let's pick two examples here on the east side, if you go to Lazarus Brewing Company, you're going to get different beers. And if you go six blocks away to Blue Owl, but if a customer's never had kettle sour, fruited sours before, and they go to Blue Owl, they're going to be like, whoa, this is crazy. And then they would go to a bunch of other breweries. Some breweries have kettle sours and fruited sours, of course, but not all do. And so then they're going to be like, oh, I really love those fruited sours when I go to Blue Owl. Then they're going to search up canned kettle sours, Austin, Texas. Witchcraft's going to pop up. They're going to become a customer of ours. They're going to come in and they're going to be like, hey, I like sours. Be like, awesome. We do too. We're going to show you 70 different sours that we have, you know, and that then you can, that's a whole launching point of like sour mash, kettle sour, fruited sour. When is fruit added? What's lactic fermentation? What's mixed culture? Right. All this stuff is like, what's Lambic? So yeah, I just, I don't think you can have the opinion that it's competition. To me, it's just like, just because they're going to breweries just means they're not our customer as well yet. Yet. All right. <laughs> Do you like that one? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so mistake nine was give every fuck you have about online beer reviews. Oh, gosh. uh, Whoever said that was a good idea. You made that mistake? This was a big issue for me. Really? Just because, like, you emotionally couldn't couldn't get past it or what? Yeah, as the artist creating, I was having a hard time separating the business side of just... And some of the things people said were uniquely terrible and truly rude and bullying. And and it is... Yeah. That is challenging to take until you find a way to compartmentalize it, which ultimately I did. It just took a long time. Totally. And one of the problems is... You as a retailer obviously have to decide what goes on your draft wall. Yeah. Do you use those rating sites as a guide? As far as like X style of beer gets X rating, so therefore it's something we should buy? Or just... Um, so specifically, I've been into accounts before where I've pitched them the beer, they'll sample the beer, they'll taste the beer, they'll decide if they like it, and then they go to untap and see what the rating is, decide if they'll buy it. Oh, interesting. I don't think I've ever done that. I think I always let my palate be the guide, but I had been doing this for a long time. And I'm confident in my own ability to pick what's what I think is good and what's not good. I've certainly not every keg I ever bought did great on the draft wall, admittedly. But I don't think I've made a decision to purchase or to not purchase something based on its online rating. But if I if I wasn't the owner of the business, basically if I was a if I was a buyer and I didn't know a ton about beer, somehow if you got into a position where you were buying but you didn't know a ton about beer, then yeah, maybe they would use that as a crutch. That's actually happened before. Has it? I, I believe it. <laughs> and that sucks. You know, I've, I've got a good buddy who's a sports writer up in the Twin Cities. And this was probably six or eight years ago now. <laughs> he would like tweet something innocuous about the sports teams in the Twin Cities. And then you'd go read the Twitter comments and people would just say the most vitriolic bullshit, like just absurd stuff to him. And I asked him one time, I was like, hey, I was reading this tweet that I thought was funny and he was some hot take. And then I go read these these comments that people wrote. And I was like, do you read those? He goes, yeah, yeah, I read them. And I was like, how do you separate exactly what you're saying? How do you separate what you're saying in your like mental health from what these people are saying? He goes, it took me a while to do that. It took me a number of years. And he goes, but you just, you just realize that whatever they're saying is a reflection of them and not you. Like you just got, you got to put your shield on and just not let it bother you because whatever they're dealing with is their shit. It's not my shit. So I was just like, Eh, okay, that kind of stuck with me uh, as a really, really cool way to look at it. It's not easy to do by any means. To your point, it took years to do it. But like, that's kind of what you have to do is just be like, whatever these people are chirping about is more about them than it is about me. And if they choose to point their fire hose of negativity at me, then whatever. <laughs> point it anywhere you want. It doesn't matter. Nothing you say is going to affect me and how much my family loves me, <laughs> whether I get any worth from what I do. It's just like, 
But uh, it's kind of a microcosm of where we are as a society, I think, right now anyway, right? Yeah, I think um, it's much easier to deal with once you have fans, too. And in the beginning, when you don't yeah, have raging fans, yeah. then the, their voice more is louder. receptive. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. And like I said, it's, it's easier said than done. Anytime you're anywhere in the public sphere, yeah, you're opening yourself up to criticism. Oh, unfortunately, but... You know, we've been... And I'll let Jody finish that story in a second. Be right back. We've been fairly blessed that the vast majority of our customers are really, truly nice folks. And they love supporting us. They love supporting witchcraft in their community. And we love being a part of the community. And so we've gotten super duper lucky. Plus, we don't produce anything. We don't make our own beer. As soon as you start making beer, yeah, you're going to have a lot more people who have an opinion about what you make. Since we are all about a taproom experience, then all customers can really complain about is the experience that they that they have and yeah not everyone's going to have a tip-top 100% five-star experience it's just it's inevitable there's no way you can be open as a small business for years and have every single person love you it's impossible and I started my, my career in hospitality I worked for the Four Seasons Hotel which was a great way to start my career because I learned then that you're not going to make everybody happy and shit's going to get screwed up. Somebody's going to screw something up. Somebody's going to get their hurt feelings. Like a customer will have their hurt feelings hurt. And that's going to happen and that's okay. But it's all about how you deal with it and how do you recover. And I've always seen it as a challenge. Can I somehow make a customer for life out of a situation in which we fuck something up for that customer? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. And it's kind of when you, when you kind of change your mindset a little bit, it, it gets a little bit easier. But again, that's from my point of view, which is experience-based, not product-based. When you're dealing with product, if a customer tastes one or two of your beers and they think they're trash... You're, you're never going to get a chance to change their mind because they're never going to taste, taste your beer again. They just won't have the opportunity. Yeah. Because, you know, 20 years ago when there was only nine microbrews available in a given city, okay, they're probably going to try your beer again at some point. But now when there's 90,000 microbrews available in every grocery store, that's an exaggeration, obviously. But when there's so many beers, they just will never try your beer again. And that's kind of a shame. But then again, what can you do? I don't know. <laughs> I, re- I really don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's a lot of fun. I've definitely gotten better. I would say one of the things that's helped as I've transitioned to just sort of understanding those people are going to shit on everything that they can find. Yeah. Tim Ferriss had a quote that I liked, and yeah. I'm sure he didn't write it, but he said basically that I spend my days servicing the fans that like what I do. Mm. I don't have time, yeah. or why would I bother to totally. make the time to Love listen that. to the guy who hates me? He's still going to hate me yeah. all day, every day. That's exactly right. But but yeah, again, easier like. said than done, but that's a great piece of advice. You know, how do you... <laughs> yeah, that's it. And that's the essence of it. And take that from yeah. a guy who has a lot of people that hate him on the internet. So <laughs> maybe it's harder for me, I guess, than some. <laughs> I get a lot of hate mail via, via the internet. I deserve it all. It's fine. <laughs> Fair enough. So mistake 10 was don't figure out how to manage cash flow. Definitely okay. was an issue for us early on yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. So for you, I was curious, in your business, has that changed dramatically from the package versus draft thing um, as far as like, how you would have to yeah, manage your cash flow? Yeah, it certainly flow? gets a lot easier with draft because, you know, you buy, uh, let's just take a $100 worth of product, right? So you can buy a $100 keg or you can buy $100 of packaged beer. $100 worth of packaged beer is probably a case of bombers. So a case of bombers in today in 2021, at best, it'll take us two months, maybe three months to sell through a case of bombers because we have so many different things, unless it's something that's super sought after, but most things aren't. So like we put a case of 12 bombers on the shelf, it'll probably take us anywhere from three to six months to turn that over. If we put a $100 keg on the draft wall, it's going to take me anywhere from one week to three weeks. And here's the other piece is that $100 case of bombers you're selling, the, the revenue you're generating from that $100 is $150, right? So 33 points margin. Uh, for the draft beer, if you buy a keg, so not only are you turning over that $100 keg in one to three weeks, but you're making 
$400 gross margin on that draft. So, I mean, that's cash flow all day compared to the package beer. So when you think about that tiny little scale times all the package you have at the old South Mar store, we had about $40,000, $45,000 at cost worth of inventory at the time. If you were to sell every single one of those for full retail price, $40,000, that would be about sixty or sixty-five grand in revenue. Sixty or sixty-five grand in revenue, you can get from like eight grand worth of kegs. Is that math right? Somewhere in there? Yeah, uh, in about a tenth of the time. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, so hopefully that didn't get too mathy. But uh, um, the gist is, anytime you add draft to the model, it drastically changes the amount of cash flow you can generate. I mean, it makes all the difference. It really does. There's no way you could operate a place like this that was just packaged beer in Austin. You might be able to do it in smaller cities in which you don't have to pay thousands of dollars in rent. So if rent is cheaper in whatever small, smaller market you're in, you can probably make a packaged beer store work, I think. Sure. But when you're talking about any retail suite in Austin, it's going to be thousands of dollars a month, depending on how big it is and where it is. But it's going to be minimum four or five, six grand a month at best. You just you can't just sell packaged beer. I mean, there's a crazy amount of packaged beer just to pay the rent, let alone overhead, utilities, labor, all that stuff. One interesting side of that coin would be, so it's the least profitable thing that we make, the mm-hmm. pre- least profitable thing that you sell. Why do we even fuck with it? question man for the love of the game <laughs> honestly that's like, probably the best answer you can give yeah it's for the i don't know everyone's got those uh anybody who's into beer has what they call their their gateway beers right what i mean by that is there's those beers that you had in your life that you can point to a time and a place where you had that beer for the very first time and it was a very singular experience right duchess we brought that up earlier yeah. i remember the first time i had duchess de Bourgogne. It was at uh, Brower's Cafe in Seattle, which is like a super old school, incredible Belgian beer bar. And one of my good friends, Isaiah, at the time, he's like, hey, have you ever had sour beer before? I'm like, sour beer? That sounds awful. What the fuck are you talking about? I was like 21, maybe. 22, if that. And uh, so he bought one of these, and I tasted it. And I remember sipping it and being like, what the fuck is that? Because it's super tart, but it's also got that, like, acetobacter. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. The vinegar. A little uh-huh. bit. Vinegar, yeah. And it's just like, uh, it was just a mind, mind fuck. And so everyone's got those experiences. A lot of people, when they travel overseas to Belgium or Germany or England or whatever, first time you drink a cask beer in England, it's like, why is this flat? Why is this room temp? Yeah. But you're like, why is this so good? (laughs) Those types of experiences, that's why we do it. And the the diversity you can get in packaged beer is way more than you can ever get diversity of draft. I think it's that, probably. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Makes the shopping experience more interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I was interested to hear you ask that question. To other brewery owners do because yeah i don't know i was talking to another local bar owner i won't won't out him here but um he owns a bar here in town <laughs> he's a buddy of mine and he's just like you know what i used to think i want to create this like really premium quality experience for customers and i wanted to like really create a cool looking place and have great well-trained staff and like good quality beers and this whole thing and he goes now i just don't care i just want to go to rainy street and build a shitty bar and sell shots and just not give a fuck about any of that stuff and just like make money doing it and i laughed because i know he's not going to do that knowing his personality but it kind of made me laugh and anybody who's been in this game for long enough it's like kind of look wistfully at like man i wish i could put in a lot less effort and not care about the quality that we're trying to output. You know what I mean? It's just like... We have the same issue as a supplier. When we try to decide what to make, I've, I've actually had a recipe for a seltzer on my computer for a year. There you go. There you go. I refused to make it. <laughs> but it was my backup plan. If shit got so bad that I yeah. was staring down bankruptcy, yeah. I already know that's my retirement plan. Like a, a pickle seltzer would have been all it had to happen, like seltzer. sitting next to pickle fucker. And, it, oh and the entire concept embarrasses yeah. me. But at the end of the day, like you yeah. do what you have to do. So yeah. Got to sell stuff. But some girl walks in your 
tap room right now and yeah. says, hey, I want to do this, but I'm going to do it in Houston. What are three things she has to know right now? Oh, man, that's great. I, I actually, there was just a, a couple women in the other night when I was working, and they they live up in like North Round Rock, they said. They said some like neighborhood that I'd never heard of. So I think it's like far north burbs. And it was their first time in. They were a couple, and they were both super nice, and they were having a couple draft beers. They called. They're like, we're going to drive down to get, I forget which beer now. And so yeah, me and JB were taking care of them. We were serving these, like, gals a couple different drinks. We were recommending packaged beers. They just had, they were sitting at the bar. You could just tell they were having a great experience, right? So my favorite customers to deal with. Their first time in, got them some signed up on our loyalty program, on our newsletter. They just had a great experience, and they're just like, oh, I know what it was. We had the apartment building above us. They, they sponsored like a little ha- happy hour for their residents. So they're like, hey, come out of Witchcraft. We'll get to buy your first beer for you. Right? Super cool they do that. They support the, you know, the bar that's in the, <clears throat> in the bottom of their apartment building. So all these people came in, like 10 people at once. And the women who were sitting at the bar were like, what are all these people? They're like, oh, it's the apartment building. You know, they're having like an open happy hour for their, their residents. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. This is so great. And I was like, you know, you should open one of these in your neighborhood, North Round Rock. One of the women's like, no. And I was like, why not? Fuck, do it. You could do this. <laughs> And she kind of looked at me for a half second like, is this guy serious? And I'm like, yeah, you absolutely should. Because it's like the, the experiences that I've had being a small business entrepreneur for the last seven or eight years, I wouldn't trade anything. And I've made a lot of mistakes and done a lot of stuff I wouldn't do again. I'm preaching to the choir here, Kelly. <laughs> but, you know, live and learn. And that's what life is about. And I have made a lot less money doing this than I could have if I was still working in the corporate world. But the enjoyment I get and the appreciation that I have when I'm taking care of our customers here is really, really awesome. And I love that about it. So anyway, three pieces of advice. Let me get back to your actual question. (laughs) I would say be overcapitalized. So make sure you have more money available to you than you think you need. Number one, along with that, plan your life around having financial support so you can live personally without having to take a salary for at least probably a year or two. So those two things kind of go together, Mm -hmm. you know, have more money than you think you need. Number two, find a location that you really want to be a part of. And what I mean by that is for retail, for a bar specifically, it's so neighborhood driven. Unless you're going to be like a rainy street bar, which again is fine. Like Craft Pride, I'm speculating there. So maybe they don't because they have so many apartments down there nowadays. But like for Bangers and for Craft Pride downtown, I would imagine a lot of their guests are visiting from out of town, right? Because Rainy Street is kind of a tourist destination. That's not the case for us. I would say probably 80% of our customers, if not more than that, live within a mile or two miles of us, which is awesome. That's what you want from a small business. So I would say piece of advice number two to this this woman, this fictitious woman you mentioned, is <laughs> find a location, a neighborhood that you really want to grow up with uh, and you want to be a part of because you're going to get to know your customers well enough. You're going to meet them when they're pregnant. You're going to meet their infants and you're, you're going to watch their infant grow up, which is really fun. I mean, yeah. that happens to us all the time. So be overcapitalized, find a neighborhood you want to be a part of, and you have to like the grind. You have to like doing a lot of different things. And if you're more of a specialist and you like finding one or two things and really honing in and focusing your time on doing those, then I don't think it's going to work. You have to be truly a generalist and you have to be at least a little bit good at a whole bunch of different things. And the things that you're really not that good at, you have to supplement them with either people that you hire or business partners or advisors, mentors, whatever it is. But know that you have to, you can't do it all yourself, but you have to be at least a little bit good about a whole bunch of different things. A Jill of all trades. There you go. That's right. All right. So give me a mistake that is not on the list Mm -hmm. of my mistakes that uh, you see other breweries make. So breweries make? When I'm when I'm writing the next book, yeah. what should I add? This is for breweries who are like in planning now who would like to open a new brewery in the next three Specifically, any brewery mistake you've made 
that was a big mistake that I guess someone that's open now don't tell me which brewery it is or you don't have to. <laughs> Uh, you can also say I did such an amazing job. I covered them all. That's fine as no, well. No, <laughs> that's. I, I think. I think packaging. So having a. Um, you, you actually covered most of the most of the stuff with your 10, 10 bullet points here. So I don't know if I have any new ones to add. I think I just reiterate: if you're going to be a packaging brewery, figuring out how to do packaging profitably is pretty crucial, and having a good method to sell the beer, sell the beer through. So meaning beer reps on the ground, the packaging style and type the type of beers that go in the package, you know, it's like, if you're going to be a packaging brewery, then you got to be super duper good at that, which I've had people ask me over the years, you can open a brewery. And I'm like, no, I don't want to open a brewery. Are you fucking kidding me? Because that's manufacturing. And I'm not a manufacturer. I'm a people person. I'm a experience creator, you know? So for me, I got to be involved with the customers, the consumers. And if you open a brewery, yeah, you might get to do that on Saturdays from three to five, but all the other hours of the week, you're doing manufacturing, you're doing quality control, you're doing lab analysis, you're doing ingredient purchasing, like all the shit that I have zero interest in. You know what I mean? Lots so, of spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah. All, that, all that crap. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I really think you covered them with those 10. Those are... That's it. Follow your roadmap. What do you think is one of the biggest challenges you overcame in your business? This past year of COVID has been crazy. I mean, I'm sure you hear that a lot, but it's one of the things that I really appreciated was seeing other people kind of in my sphere. So other small business owners, both locally, nationally with news articles and whatnot, how innovative small business owners were on the fly during COVID, right? Because shit shut down mid-March in Texas last year. And seeing small business owners pivot, create new business channels. For us, we set up an e-commerce platform that's like fully real-time inventory with all of our point-of-sale inventory, which doesn't sound like a big deal when you have thousands of SKUs. It's a huge deal to make that all work. So people innovating and figuring out how to still take care of their customers and still stay open was really inspiring. So yeah, I mentioned right before we started our podcast that we weren't closed a single day during COVID. The only day we've been closed in the past year and a half since other than Christmas was the Monday of the snowstorm, but Tuesday of the snowstorm, Justin and I were here slanging beers, making coffees, letting people charge their phones. We're on the same power grid as the hospital just around the corner here. Ah. And so we didn't lose water or power. My wife and I and my dog slept here for three nights. Really? Yeah, because we didn't have power at home. So we had uh, basically Justin and I slang beer all day. We did some of the most revenue we'd ever done in like seven or eight hours. Super, because no one else had power. So we were like a, a solace for the community. that we, we were supporting them, their time of need, and they were committed to supporting us. And then we would, you know, shut down shop at like 7, 8 p.m., make some dinner, and then just like set out the air mattress and go to sleep. <laughs> no joke, dude. It was crazy. You got to do what you got to do. Uh, got to do what you got to do. But like things like that, 20 years from now, when I look back on this experience, that's what I'm going to remember is how shitty yeah. that week was for everybody. But how we were able to still stay open and take care of our customers when they needed it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, big question. Okay. How do you still enjoy beer when you have to work to taste beer that isn't good <laughs> on a fairly regular uh, basis? Because it has affected my enjoyment of beer. Has it really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Huh. You know, I've got an appreciation for super classic styles. I love really clean, hoppy beers. So, you know, I grew up on the West Coast, so I grew up with, you know, really clean and clear bitter IPAs and I don't like them crazy you know paint thinner bitter but um, you know the whole hazy and I like hazies but I don't want to exclusively drink hazies you know what I mean there are still so many good beers out there and like I was just looking at this big old stack that got delivered earlier this afternoon I can't wait to pick my way through that and find some new things that are just coming into the market for the first time so you just drink the good ones that's the secret yeah yeah that's exactly right there's some breweries I'm going to try any new thing they put out. There's some breweries I'm not going to try any of their beers, no matter what they put out. 
there are some styles when I just read the package, I'm like, I'm not going to fucking drink that. <laughs> I'm just not. It has to do with, yeah, smoothie sours and, and pastry stouts. A lot of people love those. And that's great. But they're just not, I just can't handle that. Because to me, a lot of those things are so rarely, I look for balance. That's the same reason I love cocktails, right? So super well-made, handcrafted cocktails are always in balance. That's the whole thing. Like sweetness, yeah. dryness, bitterness, you know, fruit, it's whatever. Um, cocktails are in balance. They should be. Beers should be in balance too. And <laughs> more and more times nowadays, they're not in balance anymore. That's what the consumer seems to want. I think the yeah. industry has almost yeah. gone to that out of it balance is. thing. Well, yeah, and it's it's an extension of the like more, more everything. Just you more, know? more. Yeah, you just yeah. put more stuff in there, more adjuncts, more hops, more everything. You just keep putting more in there. You know, triple dry hopped, double dry hopped, quad dry hopped. Is that, I don't even know if that's a thing. If it is, QDH, yeah, it will yeah, be. QDH. It's a, I'm sure it's coming. But it's just like, yeah, I like balanced, really clean. So I love ABGB. I love Live Oak. I love well-made lagers. I love non-adjunct stouts. I love really clean, hoppy beers. So like maybe just Pilsner malt and then like whatever cool hops you want to feature. So I don't even like any like malty hops, hoppy beers, you know. Oh, I'll drink them, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. You know what you like. Yeah. So, Got a whole store yeah, to peruse. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Jody, I want to thank you for taking the time today. It's been awesome to talk to you. I think a lot of what you said helps a lot of people, both from your tier of the industry to our tier of the industry yeah. to the consumer drinking who needs to be educated on <laughs> what they should be doing better. But um, so anyways, I, I, I really enjoyed you taking the time and um, I thank you for letting me come out here and sit with you today. Of course, man. It's yeah. been a journey and you and I have known each other for years now too. So it's nice hearing your perspective more than maybe anybody else I can think of in the industry. You were the right guy to write this book, I think. Because I fucked up? Yeah. I appreciate that. No, I like it. So. No, it's been great. I appreciate the time. Anyways, man, well, thank you very much. Yeah, and no uh, we'll, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guests tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around, and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, Peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. Media.